Today, you guys, we are actually going to finish up chapter 8 of John. We've been in it for a long time, and I'm excited to get to the end of this chapter. And we've gone slowly because it's been packed with all sorts of stuff. And I don't like just reading the Bible and just saying, well, I don't really get that. Let's just skip it. Forget it. It's like, now let's dig into it and see why Jesus said what he said. Um, Jesus has been put on trial and it's not an official trial. It's not a legal trial yet. That's still to come in his life. But basically this crowd in the Jewish leaders put him on trial and they interrogate him. And the context here again is he's in Jerusalem. There was a major feast happening in Jerusalem where thousands and thousands of Jews had come to to uh, celebrate this festival of booths. And near the end of that, Jesus stood up and began to, for the first time, publicly reveal his identity to this crowd. And, and he, he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not live in darkness. And whoever does not follow me is in darkness already and will live in darkness forever. And he says that he is... The Messiah, he is the one, the Son of God, sent from God to, sent from the Lord, from, from God the Father, not to condemn us, but to save us. Um, he came to seek spiritually lost people, to rescue us from our sin, to show us the way to God. And, and these were exclusivistic offensive claims. And if Jesus said this today, as he does in his word, we, we would be offended if we saw this on TV. Because he doesn't claim to be a light of the world. He claims to be the light of the world. That's exclusive. He's the light of the world. And, and then he goes on and he tells this crowd, you know what, you guys, Pharisees, Jewish crowd, you have not even been knowing and in fellowship with the true God. You think you know God, but you don't because you don't know me and you've rejected me. And the only person that can really free you from this bondage that you're in, that you don't even see you're in, is me. The only one who can give you true hope and peace in your life is me. And until you surrender to me, you won't have peace in your life. And you won't have freedom from sin and from the lusts of this world and from the devil. Now, it's, it's no surprise we see this doesn't go over well with the crowd at all. In fact, it says they want to kill him. And, and we've read several times that people have tried to kill him. They've actually tried to get their hands on him, but they can't do that because God in all his sovereignty has not allowed um, anybody to put their hands on his son Jesus yet. What we've seen as, as the crowd has gotten angry is we've seen the power of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't even have to raise up a fist. He doesn't have to try to intimidate anybody with his face being angry at him. He just says one sentence. He's the word of God. And by speaking, he disables mobs of bloodthirsty people. Remember in chapter 7 when the Pharisees sent the temple guards, they said, go arrest this man. Go arrest him. And so they, they run, they go to arrest him. While he's teaching, it says they couldn't arrest him 
They run back to the Pharisees, and Pharisees are like, what, what's going on? Why don't you have them? And all they can say is, nobody ever spoke like this man. You've got to hear this man speak. And then remember at the beginning of chapter 8, when the, when the crowd had gathered to throw stones at the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says one sentence to them. He speaks a sentence. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And by saying that one sentence, it totally incapacitates the crowd. All the, all the people could do is they just, they drop their stones and they walk away one person at a time, starting with the oldest. And Jesus' words are powerful because he is, what the Bible says, the logos of God. He is the word of God. Jesus is the flesh and wisdom of God. Uh, sorry, Jesus is the wisdom of God in human flesh. He's the message of God. He's the good news of God in his person. And, and so we were, we're going we're gonna to see how he finishes this conversation with the crowd today. So if you've got your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. If you're here and you don't own a Bible, let us know. We'd love to give you one after the service um, or direct you to uh, a good Bible that you can purchase, whatever you want. But uh, we do love the word here, and, and we want to abide in the word in our lives. Let's ask God to help us before we read this word. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this word. May we not take it for granted. This is um, breathed out by you. It is your word that you use to correct us, to teach us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that now in our hearts. Would you please draw us to you with power, those of us who know you and who need perseverance and help in you, and those of us who don't know you but are looking for truth. Would you please show us your truth today in supernatural ways, Spirit. Please make this not just something that sits in our head and it's like, oh, I heard a good message today or, oh, I heard this word. Sink, drive it down into our hearts, Lord. Drive it into our hearts. Pierce our hearts with your word. Change us. Break us with your word so that you can shape us into people who love you more, who love others more, and who bring you more glory in our lives. We need you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what we're going to do today, instead of reading the whole chunk uh, at once, we're going to read one verse at a time because, again, there's a lot in here, and I think that would be more helpful to take it one sentence at a time. And so instead of believing Jesus, you have the Pharisees here in this non-believing crowd, and they're getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and... As their fury begins to escalate, uh, they continue to interrogate him. And in John eight forty eight, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay. Now, at this point, the crowd is going for the jugular with Jesus, okay? They're, they're trying to hurt him, to abuse him verbally, before they abuse him physically, okay? They call him a Samaritan because that was a, uh, an ethnic slur, 
Okay, the, the, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews and the Pharisees. The, the leaders of the Jewish people forbade the Jewish people from, from mingling with the, the uh, Samaritans or touching them or touching anything used by them. And so they called Jesus a Samaritan. Now, obviously, Jesus, you can tell ethnically, he's not a Samaritan. He's a Jew. And so the Pharisees are essentially calling him a traitor. They're saying... Jesus, you are a traitor. You, you were born into a Jewish family, and now you are saying that the Jews don't know God. You're a traitor. And worse than that, you're, you're possessed by a demon. You're telling us that we are in bondage to the devil? We've never been in bondage to anybody. You're the one possessed by a demon. And then in the next verse, 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. So he reassures him. He said, I don't have a demon. Okay, I'm not demon-possessed. That's not what's going on here. The truth is that I'm honoring my father, and as I do that, you are dishonoring me. Now, how ironic it is that Jesus is the one person in this whole scene who's standing up for truth. He's the one person who's truly honoring God the Father with his thoughts and with his actions. Yet he is the one who is attacked. And he is the one who's dishonored. You guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is what happens to your teacher. Okay? This is what Jesus had to endure. He was alone. He was accused. He was hated. He was attacked. And he says in, in Matthew 10 that if he was maligned and hated and attacked and alone, then we, his followers, should expect the same treatment. No servant is greater than his master. But he encourages us and says the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not easy to follow Jesus in, in our society, and it's never been easy to follow Jesus. And if you say being a Christian and following Jesus is easy for you, then I really doubt you're a Christian, honestly. Because every day it's a battle. <laughs> That's how the Bible puts it. It says you're in a battle. You're a battle against the impulses of your flesh. You're in a battle against the devil and what he wants you to do. You're in a battle against this world and what it wants to do and wants to use peer pressure to get you to be part of running from God. It's a, it's a battle to honor God with, with our lives and to stand strong, to stand firm to our convictions in Scripture. When the world says, will you please stop being a bigot? Just stop being, accept the fact the Bible's a myth. Jesus is not the standard of objective truth. Pick your truth, okay? You can say Jesus is a light of the world. Don't say he's the light of the world. Ultimately, the only way to avoid being persecuted for Jesus is to stop abiding in Jesus and to stop abiding in his word. And that's why so many self-proclaimed Christians are dropping around us like flies. That's exactly what's happening. Churches are changing statements of faith Christians are saying, well, I know you believed that in the 80s, but it's a different day and age now. They're changing the message of Jesus. They're changing the message of the Bible in order to please society so that they won't be persecuted like Jesus was. 
There's no greater privilege, though, you guys, than to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. (laughs) There isn't. And even though you are going to go to work tomorrow, you're going to go to school tomorrow, you're going to go to your practice, whatever you got, and you might feel like you are the only Christian, and you might be the only Christian at your workplace, you need to know you're not alone. Jesus is with you. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, in our community, and around the globe who are enduring the same suffering as you, okay? This is one of the reasons why it is so important that we live in intentional Christian community together, okay? Um, This is why our community groups at Cedar Home are important. This is why discipleship relationships and and gospel-centered friendships are important at Cedar Home because it's not enough, you guys, to show up on Sunday. And what I mean is not as an obligation. I mean, it's not enough for us. We need Jesus, and we need to surround ourselves with people who are going to be pointing us to Jesus We need to be together and encourage one another and pray together as much as we possibly can. You guys, something that we're starting to do, we started about the past five weeks, which I want to invite you to be part of, is to pray with us more often. We need prayer. We need to pray as a church together. And so every Sunday morning at 8.30 in the chapel, we're starting a time of 20 minutes of prayer. And... And our leaders are there, and we've, we've started kind of with our leadership team kind of gathering and praying together. We want to invite you to, to join us for that. Um, it's not necessarily a time where we all lift up our different requests. It's, our, it's, it's, it's a time where, Lord, would you be glorified in our family and on this property today for 20 minutes? And then there's Sunday school and then worship service. But would love for you to join us in prayer um, at 8.30 on Sunday mornings in the chapel. This is the neat thing. When we seek out Christian community, when we seek out the family of God here on earth, we are living out physically what God has already done miraculously in the spiritual realm, okay? He made us his family. And in Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God And as his sons and daughters, we link arms together in our our pursuit together to love God and to love others more. That means that we don't treat one another as enemies anymore. And we, we don't treat one another as brothers and sisters in the flesh who fight. We treat one another as brothers and sisters made in the image of God, who by God's grace we can be reconciled to because Jesus has reconciled us to God. Okay, It's a miraculous thing that he's, he's doing and redeeming in our lives and in our fellowship by making us into people who interact with other people in ways we never would if it weren't for Jesus. By helping us love others, forgive others, encourage others, spur one another on. We need each other. Community is one of the central means of God's grace that he gives us to help us persevere in the faith. And so just as, as Jesus was dishonored, we also will be dishonored as his church and as individuals. Jesus goes on to say in verses 50 to 51, yet 
I did not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So one thing I want you to see here is that Jesus honors God the Father in a way that you and I can't. Okay? In verse 29, he says that he, all, which we, isn't in this passage, in verse 29, though, he said that he always does the things that are pleasing to God the Father. Okay? He always does what is right. He always does what pleases God. Jesus never did one displeasing thing in the Father's eye during his life on earth. That's incredible. That's incredible. That, that is so different than you and me. It's, it's so different. Because we struggle every minute to honor God with our thoughts. We struggle every minute to honor God with our actions and with our words. And so what this means is that if anyone who's ever walked the earth deserves glory for living a perfect life, it's Jesus. He's the one. But you see what he says is, I don't seek my own glory. That's incredible. Now for you and me, it is wrong and sinful to seek glory for ourselves because in our flesh, we're not glorious. But Jesus says that even in his flesh and blood humanity, in the fullness of his humanity, he was perfectly glorious. Okay. Jesus was totally human, totally God. And he's not just saying, in my total divinity, my godness, am I perfect? He's saying, in my total humanity, I'm perfect too. It's amazing. And he says, I don't seek my own glory, even though he had every right to seek his own glory. We see that even though he lived a perfect life, he didn't seek his own glory. The Pharisees did. We have, but not Jesus. Jesus just wanted to see God the Father honored in his life. And that is the definition of perfect humility. Perfect humility. And that's what we're going after, you guys. Exactly the same kind of attitude that we should pray, God, would you please work this sort of humility out in my life? Please teach me that this life, my job, my kids, my family, my house, my money, my time is not mine. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about my glory. All of these things you've given to me for a little while to make as much of you as possible during my time on earth. To love others the way that you've loved me. And then we also see in verse 50 that there's a connection between Jesus the Son who honors God the Father. And at the same time, God the Father seeks the glory of his Son. Okay, so there's Jesus honoring his father, and at the same time, God is glorifying his son. And that's because all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are mutually glorious. They're mutually perfect. And it says here that as Jesus lived to bring glory to the Father, the Father seeks the glory of his son. So what that means is glorifying God is important to God. Honoring God is important to God. And if it matters to God, it should matter to us. God always does what's right. It says he, 
That's, that's why we're glad here. It says that he's the good judge. He's the one with perfect discernment. He's the one who always does what's right in every situation. He always does justice. He always rewards good. He always punishes evil. And if exalting the Lord for being the good judge is important to the Lord, then as his children, it should be extremely important to us too. Okay? What that, lo- what that means is glorifying God, obeying God, seeking to obey God, where we take these words of Scripture and don't just say, wow, that's really cool. I can't believe Jesus lived that kind of life. But saying, wow, this is my game plan from God. He wants me to seek Him. He wants me to work on the way I speak, the way I use my money, the way I talk, the way I think. And by God's Holy Spirit, I, I, can, I can do that. And for the one whom God has saved, it's not just this duty, it's, it's a desire that he puts into our heart. It really is. It's not this, oh, I gotta go, I gotta do this stuff for God. It's like, I get to, it's, Jesus, how can I worship you in every part of my life? It's this desire that's like, I can't believe you took my life out of the gutter. And now you want to use me for your glory? That's the way. That's the, that's the change of attitude. And, and if you're lost and if you're dead to God, then that makes no sense to you. It makes no sense to you. What I would say is the most important thing in the world, for, to, the most important way you can use your life, the dead would say, that's the biggest way you could waste your life ever. We need God to help us see, see this and, and, and to describe uh, what God's love looks like for us. Jesus goes on and he says this. Um, he says in verse 51, I'm telling you the truth. If you keep my word, then you will never taste death. If you trust in me, abide in me, you will never taste death. Okay. And what he's saying here is he wants you to know this today, that you are loved. I love you. God loves you. The leaders here at Cedar Home love you. This family loves you. And, and that's not including, I'm sure, all the people not in this room who love you. But you need to know this, that there's no other person that... that, that No person on earth has ever loved you the way Jesus has loved you. And there's no person right now alive who loves you the way Jesus loves you right now. And no person loves you or can love you the way Jesus loves you. Because nobody can be your God. Only Jesus can. I mean, what beloved person that you hold dearly in your life loves you so much that they have killed death for you? They killed it. They killed death for you. Nobody but Jesus could do that, and nobody but Jesus has done that. And Jesus has said that unless we believe in him, we will experience eternal death now and for eternity. And he also says this, that for those of you who love me and trust in me, I have taken death away from you. I've taken you away from death. So for the Christian, 
Death is no longer our age-old enemy that we stayed up at night freaking out about. Think, what's that going to be like? It's, it's, it's nothing we have to, to worry about. It's, it's nothing that we have to think about. How can I make my life as long? I've got to live as long as possible so that I don't die. That's not realistic. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, parentheses Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were subjects to slavery, to the devil, because we were his slaves. We were scared of death, but Jesus has come to destroy the one who has the power of death. Because of Jesus, because of what he's accomplished in his life and in his death and resurrection, you do not have to be a slave to fear anymore. You do not have to fear death anymore. Death is no longer a... a, a, a something that, that we avoid at all costs. It is now because of Jesus, the doorway we walk through in order to experience the greatest infinite joy we've ever known. That's what Jesus does to death. <laughs> and, and he loves us. And he has expressed his love for us by, well, you read your Bible, all through the Bible, but most at its pinnacle, we see the love of God for us in the cross. He killed death for us by being killed for us. When he was hung on the cross, he, he had to become our ugliness, our evil, our rebellion, those sinful thoughts in our minds, those sinful feelings in our hearts, and he bore it. He became it. He became the perfect lamb of God and he, that he, he, as the perfect lamb of God, he became that sin for us and and God the Father, seeing what his son had become on the cross, looked down and he poured out his wrath on Jesus, the punishment that we deserve. He poured out his righteous, horrible wrath onto Jesus. He was our substitute. Jesus was. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve hell. You and I do. This is what Jesus did to love us. And after doing this, after becoming our sin, after... Okay, good question here. Sorry, this just came to my mind. I had a teenager ask me once. Um, I know you didn't ask that, but maybe somebody asked that. How... Um, let me think real quick. I don't understand why the cross is that big of an expression of God's love for us if Jesus, who's God, died for three days and then came back to life. Right? I mean, it's, it's like, um, it doesn't seem like that big of a sacrifice. Because he died for three days, he knew he was going to be coming back to life. So why is it that big of a deal? It's a, it's a, honestly, it's a decent question. What it is, though, is it's a human way of looking at an eternal accomplishment that our finite brains cannot comprehend. Because 
Yes, and yes, we need to, well, I shouldn't say we need to, but yes, movies like The Passion of the Christ open our eyes to what Jesus endured in the flesh, and that has made an impact on many people and has brought them to Christ, praise God. What we need to at least begin to grasp, though, is that the physical suffering Jesus endured was the tip of the iceberg compared to the eternal suffering he endured while he was on the cross, okay? So he really went to hell. He really endured an eternity of hell within a a small time limit on the cross, okay? Our brains can't comprehend that, but that's, that's what happened. It wasn't, oh, Jesus experienced three hours of hell on the cross. No, he experienced your eternity of hell and the, everyone who he purchased on the cross all at once in the time that he was on the cross and in his death. That's what happened. Our brains can't comprehend it. But know that the great news is this, that since Jesus already suffered the eternity of hell for you, then there isn't an eternity of hell anymore for you to suffer. Because Jesus already paid for it on the cross and he doesn't, God doesn't punish the same sin twice. He already did it for you. That's, that's awesome. And then he didn't just lie dead, man, like all of us would. He came back. <laughs> he came back. He, he, he came back from the tomb. He said, for all who trust in me, I have justified you now. I've taken away your wrath. I've declared you now not guilty before God so that you can approach the throne of God with confidence. You can draw near to Jesus because of Jesus. Many people love you, but nobody loves you the way Jesus loves you. And even though the Pharisees and this angry crowd hear this, they want to destroy Jesus, What's amazing is he doesn't yet abandon them. He doesn't yet leave them. Instead, he keeps keeps preaching to them because it's his desire that some of them will be saved. And even though he has that desire for them, they could care less because they're dead to him. They're set on dishonoring him, and so they continue to interrogate him. And in verses 52 to 53, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now remember, as Jesus taught crowds on earth, one of the things he was constantly trying to do was to get people to think, well, kind of what we were just talking about, trying to get people to not think just about the physical realm, but to, th- to understand the reality that what you see physically is only a little bit of what actually exists in reality, that there is a whole spiritual realm that you cannot see. Now, um, in our society right now, in post-1850, post, did you know that science has only been around for like 300 years? Did you know that? Seriously. It was in, it, the, 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 what we would call empirical science. Okay? So we live in this age of science that cannot accept that anything that cannot be empirically observed, physically seen, exists. 
And Jesus says that is foolishness. And you are, you are believing lies. <laughs> you are a fool if you think that all that exists is this physical world. And you're a fool if you don't believe in miracles. Scientists can't do anything with miracles. And that's why I hear so many stories about doctors dumbfounded in hospitals. They're like, we, we can't explain that. Can't explain that. And I know many of us have explained mir- or experienced miracles too. But Jesus wanted us to understand that your body, there's more to you than your body. You have a soul. You're, as human beings alone, created in the image of God. He made you like him in a very special way. And you have an eternal soul that's going to live forever. It's going to exist forever. And there are spiritual things that exist that you have never seen. Maybe we won't ever see. But someday we will see things like angels. That's why Jesus says, who, who has this ultimate who created all this stuff physical and invisible says that there is a water I'm telling you guys about that is much much greater than any physical water you're going to get on earth your earthly body is going to dry up and turn to dust but Jesus is the living water who promises to bless and quench our souls which live forever Jesus says there is a bread that is infinitely better than physical bread. And he is the living bread that we eat, that we take into our souls through faith. He is the bread which satisfies us, which quenches our our thirst and our hunger forever. But in verses 52 to 53, the Jews, they're not thinking about earthly things. They tell Jesus, okay, you, you really are possessed by a demon, Even our patriarch Abraham died. Even the people who wrote scripture died. And Jesus, you're telling us that if we follow you, we'll never die? Who do you think you are? You think you're better than Abraham? You think you're better than the prophets? You're evil, Jesus. And Jesus answered in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, and of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Man, Jesus could have crushed these, these Pharisees if he wanted to. He could have, with one word, destroyed them, but he doesn't. He's patient, and he repeats to them that God the Father glorifies him and honors him. And the very same God that the Jews claim to be their God, that's the God who exalts the man in front of them, Jesus. And Jesus says, you haven't known him. I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I'd be lying because I know him. But I'm not like you. I'm not a liar. I, I do know God the Father. I do obey him perfectly. And in fact, your, your patriarch Abraham, who you take so pride, so much pride in being related to, well, 
He looked forward to the day when I would be here. He looked forward to the day when I would walk this earth. He looked forward to me in faith, and I filled him with joy. Keep in mind, Abraham lived a long, long, long time ago before this ever happened. Abraham was considered the father of the Jewish people, and all of Judaism started with Abraham, and, and God promised to bless all peoples, including you and me, through Abraham's family. And so Jesus points out this reality that we look back in 2015 to the cross in history for our salvation, and everyone before the cross who looked forward to the cross were saved through their faith too. It's through trusting in Jesus alone that anyone is saved. And, and when the Pharisees heard Jesus say that, um, and when they heard him say, Abraham, look forward to you, they kind of chuckled, I imagine. And in verse 57, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? So again, they're kind of the thing of earthly things, not spiritual things. And like, Jesus, you're just a little guy, kind of mocking him. You're just a little guy. You're telling us you've seen Abraham with your own eyes? And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. Boom. There it is. Okay. No more playing games. Jesus has been carefully, gradually revealing his identity to the world, and now he shows all its cards. I am. He says, truly, two times in a row, meaning I'm telling you the truth here. Listen up. With everything in me, I'm telling you, did I see Abraham? Of course I saw Abraham. Before Abraham was, I was. Okay. He's, but Jesus is saying much more than he was, that, that he's merely alive before Jesus, uh, before Abraham lived. He's saying, I am. I am is one of the most famous names of God in the Bible. God refers to himself as I am throughout the Old Testament. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses said, who are you, God? And he said, I am who I am. And God's name was so honored Guys, we live in a culture that does not honor the name of God. It's blasphemous. God's name was so honored by the Jews, they didn't even write it down. It was, it was blasphemy to misuse God's name in any way. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, we read about an Israelite man, a church-going man, probably a good man, who blasphemed God's name and God tells the Israelites to stone him to death for saying his name in vain. And in our day and age, when we hear God's name used in vain all the time, we might think, isn't that a little overboard to kill somebody for using God's name in vain? Well, then you have to ask, how great do you think God is? Or how puny do you think God is? If you believe that he's small and insignificant and ignorable, then of course you think it's overkill for somebody to die for blaspheming his name. But if you believe that God is as great as he says he is in scripture, 
If you believe that these descriptions of him are accurate, if you believe that he is holy, 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 that there are angels appointed for all eternity simply to sing holy, 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 if you believe that he's greatly to be praised from everlasting to everlasting, if you really believe he is the alpha, he is the omega, he is the beginning, he is the end, he is the good judge who is righteously jealous for the glory of his own name, if you believe that's who God is, then you might think twice about blaspheming his name. And here Jesus is, he's not only saying God's name, but he's claiming his name. He's saying, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the vine. I am. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God the Son sent to save humanity from sin and eternal misery. He is I am. And I know that some of you and and whoever hears this might not believe Jesus is God. You might not believe that Jesus is I am and that he can save your soul and that you really are in trouble without him. So I ask you this. Who can save your soul? You? Are you going to raise yourself up from the dead? Is that what's going to happen? What is your hope after death? Right now, what is your hope? God calls you today. What's your hope? Your parents? They're not going to the other side with you. Your friends? Your boss, your professors at UW who know everything? Your positive thinking? Your your good works? Who but Jesus can possibly save us? Who but Jesus is God? Who but Jesus is, is, has been the perfect Passover lamb who took on our sin and killed it by absorbing the full wrath of God toward us? Who else has done that? Who, who else can get rid of the punishment for our sin and the guilt of our past? Who but Jesus is qualified? Show me. I mean, I would love to have the discussion. And, and I don't want to be mocking. I mean, I would, I, there's nobody. Show, me, show the history books. Show me the leader of every world religion. Who else can do this? Who is qualified to be the one mediator between God and man that says God God says there must be? Who but Jesus fulfilled hundreds of ancient prophecies in his birth and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection? Who but Jesus was publicly slaughtered and then publicly witnessed by hundreds of people to raise from the dead and whose resurrection was subsequently testified about by non-Christians and Christians? Who but Jesus? Man, you guys, we've got to believe and enjoy that Jesus is I am and in him we will never walk in spiritual darkness again. All right? The message of the gospel is that Jesus is I am. Jesus saves us. We exalt him. Jesus gets the glory. We get eternal joy. That's the message of the gospel. 
And so, with this great news, how do we respond to God? Not just with our hearts and not just with our minds. How do we respond to him with the entirety of our beings? Well, he says, repent and turn to me. Will we turn from our sin daily and turn to him? Well, let's see how the crowd responded. Verse 59 says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When Jesus proclaimed, I am, okay, and this is happening to you right now, he immediately forced everyone present in that crowd and everyone in this room to make a decision. Either they must believe that he is I am and surrender to him, or they must believe that he's blaspheming and he deserves death. There isn't a third option. You can't say, oh, Jesus is just a good teacher. No, good teachers don't lie. He is either who he says he is or he's a liar. There's not a third option. Either surrender to me or kill me. So Jesus says. And the crowd is enraged by Jesus. And, and they don't even give him a legal trial, which the next step would have been to take him to court. But they skip that process. They skip the whole judicial process. They pick up stones so that they can kill him right there. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, the text doesn't say uh, that Jesus used supernatural means to hide himself, to leave the temple. But I don't know how else it would have been possible. Uh, Everybody knew his face. There were thousands of eyes on him the whole time. Regardless of how he did it, though, what's most important about this departure is that finally he leaves them. Okay, He's been very patient with them, but now he leaves them. And the words he had spoken to them would haunt many of them during their lives on earth and for eternity. Remember he said in verse 21, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This passage has been preached um, for centuries. There's a great Christian man, Augustine or Augustine, in the fourth century, and when he preached this passage, this is what he said to his congregation. As a man, Jesus fled from the stones, but woe to those whose stony hearts God has fled. Woe to those from whose stony hearts God has fled. Let me read that one more time. As a man, Jesus fled from the stones, but woe to those from whose stony hearts God has fled. Jesus gives us a a window of time to to follow him, to make that decision. And none of us know how much time we we have. We know that we have about 20 seconds left to live right now, if we were to, you know, of, of air in our lungs. What will you believe about Jesus today, right now? Are you ready to meet him today? What will you ask him to to save you and to keep you close to him? Or will you pick up a stone and reject him and divorce yourself from the only person who can give you everything you need. If you are a Christian, 
then don't pick up a stone. Pick up your cross and keep following Jesus. And link arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ as we keep fighting the good fight together because we trust that the one who endures to the end by God's grace will be saved. Let's turn to Jesus now and every day and celebrate that Jesus is I am. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are I am. We worship you. We glorify you. We need you, God. This world is hopeless. Um, In our flesh, we are people of unclean lips and hearts. But in you, Jesus, we are born again. We are given new life. We live in the light of you forever. I pray for those here today, God, who... aren't there, who aren't, who aren't trusting in you, Jesus. And I pray that they would seek you and that you would miraculously reach in with power and save them and show them yourself with power that they might be in your family soon. We pray for our loved ones and our neighbors, God, who, who don't believe it. And... We admit, God, that even though we are the ambassadors of you, we are the stewards of this incredibly great eternal message that uh, in our flesh we are fearful. We're scared to reach out. So, Jesus, may we remember that uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live is not my life. It's your life. And so use us, God, as we are mocked for you. Use us as people. What? (laughs) I don't care being mocked by people. I don't want to be mocked by you, Jesus. And so I thank you that you're the good judge. You're with us. You're for us. And we have your power in us. This Christmas season.